This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Welcome to another episode of Erased. I am your co-host, Colette Bowers-Zinn, sitting here alongside Lisa Johnson. Welcome back. Today, we are discussing... We are discussing allyship and co-conspirators. Definitely coming dun, out dun, of dun. some requests from our listeners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I also think it's just, you know, the crux behind the importance of this conversation, and I'm sure we're going to get much more into this once we I, you know, introduce our fabulous two guests is really that, you know, we can't do this by ourselves. We wouldn't be in this position right now if we could. So hugely important conversation to talk about what allyship is, what it looks like, how to even begin to consider yourself being an ally. And what is a true ally? What is a true ally? Let's get into it. I'd like to introduce you to Shelley Touchlip. She is an author, educator with a background in psychology who now trains teachers to work in L.A.'s diverse school populations as a professor in the education department of Mount St. Mary's University in Los Angeles. She also works with Aware L.A., which is the Alliance of White Anti-Racists Everywhere Los Angeles, and with them co-created a workshop series that leads white people into a deeper understanding of their personal relationship to race, white privilege, and systematic racism. And also on the line with us today is Ansley Newsom. She's a stay-at-home mom of two and an activist for several causes close to her heart, such as gun control, voter rights, and more recently, racial justice. Ansley is also one of my oldest and dearest friends from uh, sixth grade. We went to the same prestigious independent school in Atlanta. And since the murder of George Floyd, we've had some really tough heart-to-hearts, some conversations about privilege, what it means to, quote-unquote, do the work. And the best way to facilitate that work. Um, so welcome, ladies. Thank you for joining us. To our listeners, I just want to note that they are both joining us remotely via Skype. So please bear with us in any sound issues that you might hear in the process. And these are also both women who I consider friends who both happen to be white. That is a particular context that I think is important to note for this conversation. We like to get stu- uh, stuff kicked off by asking our guests, you know, acknowledging the intersectionality of sexism and racism. When was the last time either of you felt erased, again, diminished or not seen or heard because of your gender in this case? Shelley, do you want to let us know, get get the conversation started? Sure. It's it, it's such a point of privilege, but I don't remember And I don't remember. I think I am an educator. I work at a women's college. I work mostly with women. The people who are above me are women. I'm an only child where my father, you know, really became a feminist on my behalf. And so I have had this experience of being raised to use my voice wherever I am, even when I'm with men to not feel erased. And I think it's having been a, a white female. Um, that's, that's just, that's just what my life experience has been. Excellent. Well, I love that you qualified all that with such a place of privilege. Amen. <laughs> um, and Ansley, mm-hmm. so when was the last time you felt erased because of your gender? I think um, the first thing that comes to mind is um, a visit to a dental office that I had recently. And it was a, a new practice for me. And the, um, the dentist uh, 
uh, talk down, down to his assistant. And it was really awkward. And I thought maybe they were just having an argument that day. But upon subsequent visits, I realized that that just the dynamic within the whole office with the other women in the office. And um, it was very awkward. And even though it wasn't directed at me personally, I felt diminished just by being a woman in that space. Yeah. Um, it felt it felt very toxic. Are you going to go back to that dentist? <laughs> well, no, no. Uh, I had to, he had to finish the work. Yeah. Like there were some, it was a several visit kind of situation. So, um, but no, I'm not going back. Excellent. Here, here. So Shelly, if you could help us get started, what is an ally? You know, what is the definition of it? But more, more importantly, what does it look like in action? Well, I'll go back to what I heard when I first started sort of having this conversation, because I was really confused. We're going back about 20 years or so ago, and somebody started using the term white ally, and that was way before it was a common term to use. And I went to some folks and, and asked, and specifically some Black folks I knew, said, what is this ally thing that I've been hearing about? Because no one in my white community knew at all. And essentially, the person said, a white anti-racist activist. And I'll say that that scared me because that felt really intense for where I was at the time. Um, what I've understood from that point forward is that the key word is the active part, not necessarily activist, mm -hmm. but being active. So when I think about allyship, I like to think of allyship more than being an ally because that noun as though you've arrived, you, it's a position, right? It's a role. I'm an ally. That is problematic because quite frankly, allyship is more relational mm -hmm. because for me, being an ally in, is at any given moment being able to show up and respond in a way that is supportive and useful toward justice and toward you know racial justice if you're talking about white allyship, so to speak. No, excellent. Ainsley, what did you think that meant before diving in more deeply now that you see what it actually means to be an ally? Well, I think originally I thought of an ally as someone who walks in someone else's shoes, um, which is, you know, extremely important. But now I think of a true ally is um, the need to examine your own shoes and um, the shoes that I'm in and see if anything needs changing or if I'm unknowingly contributing to the problem. And I also think that I used to think ally was simply not being a racist. Um, but I think maybe the first step to being a true ally is not necessarily equating the word racist with like the, you know, a white supremacist or a member of the KKK, but rather understanding that we're all racist in a way, like we all have biases and of all races, like within, even within our own community and our own race. That's a really great point that I just want to highlight for listeners. Again, there's a great difference between an empath and an ally. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of people are out there saying I'm an ally because racism sucks and I can acknowledge that racism sucks. Yeah. And that is not an ally. What you said holds true. It is about examining yourself and your contributions and figuring out then what Shelley said is how to show up as an activist for what we know right. to be right. For sure. And, you know, again, not just sitting on the sidelines watching and cheering yeah. for other people as they do the work, but also diving in and doing the work yourself. What about the notion of the, the other term that has come to light, co-conspiracy, uh, co-conspirator, sorry. Shelly, do you have any opinion about that? And, and is there a preference for terms? Which for me, I, I mean, I'll just be honest. For me, 
I understand that all of the terms have different connotations. And so there are really legitimate and important reasons when people start to shift in their use of terminology. Um, that said, I don't have a particular preference except for whatever works. Anything, any language I can use to be influential in getting another white person to pay attention and be active in this work is a word I'm willing to use. That said, I think the difference that I do understand is that, you know, a lot of people went around saying, oh, I'm an ally, I'm an ally, meaning like I checked my boxes, I did my work, I understand racism is bad. And so now I'm all good, right? And now I'm going to show up thinking that I don't have any more work to do. And that makes a lot of people like, defensive when we say, actually, you're not done. You know, we've got a lot more work to do. Um, so there's part of that. And then also the ally position has, has often given the connotation that, you know, people of color, black, indigenous people of color don't have agency on their own. And so the allies, like as though people of color can't do something without having the ally who's going to like swoop in and be the savior person. So that's kind of a problematic part of that term ally in the way some people have used it. So co-conspirator kind of tries to solve some of those problems, right? So co-conspirator is, is active engagement with somebody. It's like there's a shared effort toward liberation with the idea of co-conspirator. So I get that term. I like it. I like it. I think there are some people who, you know, don't understand the nuances enough to have adopted it. Right. Yeah, I'm all for whatever term is not going to scare you away from it. Because I do think a lot of people, you know, I think they're just frightened by the notion of what it actually means. So I just looked up conspirator because I'm having a reaction to that term right now. And it's it's a person who takes part in a conspiracy. So we're bringing conspiracy into the room. And I don't love equating mm-hmm. doing justice work or diversity, equity and inclusion work and labeling it as a conspiracy. Yeah, that does not sit well with yeah. me. Well, again, for me, I agree with Colette. Yeah. Sorry. No, I just think tomato, tomato. I just want you in this work with me <laughs> as if it is, you know, your life, depending on it. Um, I hear you. So Ansley. So again, Ansley and I go way back. And, you know, for all of my old friends, my old friends who happen to be white, she has always been one of the most um, thoughtful, vocal, interested person in understanding her relationship with race and what more she can do to make a difference. She's always just been ready and willing to roll up her sleeves. And I remember after George Floyd, we had a conversation and I pretty much nudged her to dig deeper. And she rose to the occasion and she's been doing a lot more work since then. But I want you, Ansley, to tell us a little bit more about your journey with race and when you feel like things finally started clicking for you um, to get you to this point. And, and where you think you are in your journey? Well, um, I, I would say I'm definitely still in the very beginning. You know, I'm, I'm really learning. And I think this summer, a lot of white people woke up um, somewhat. You know, I mean, I mean, it's a long journey. But, um, you know, I think Ahmaud Arbery, when I, that was really hard for me. I mean, he was jogging in broad daylight in a quiet neighborhood. And it, I mean, there's, and you know, it just it's crazy and it keeps happening over and over. But I think a lot of white people didn't know what to do. And just like you said, like you reached out to me and, you know, and, and so I, that's, you literally used the word help in a text. And like, that was like what spurred me initially. I, you know, I couldn't ignore that. But I, but I'd been thinking about race for uh, several years because I've witnessed how ineffective shame is as a motivator. It, it seems like it stops the conversation. 
and you end up with a lost opportunity. Um, and that's this summer I reached out to a lot of white friends in order to create a space where they could talk and feel comfortable like messing up while also hopefully learning and growing at the same time. I love our RPG's quote, you know, standing up for something, but doing it in a way that people want to join you. And I, I really agree with that. So I, I'm just a novice still, but I, you know, I'm trying. Yeah, no, when it's thoroughly appreciated. Um, I'm just curious. I think you have a great opportunity to help people understand really what it looks like. Because again, I think we're going from a, a position of, of people wanting to do more and not knowing really what that means and how to even get started. Yeah. And so I, I appreciate yeah. you saying my text, it, it does show the power of, of communication in this process and the power of, of leaning on one each other, one another. And I'll say I struggle a little with that shame piece. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I'm out to shame folks, but it triggers in me the whole like, and we do it as the people, especially as black people, but it triggers in me this whole like, and we continue to have to make things palatable for people to show up and do what's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. But you know, the hard part is I think for so many people, they just, they have not from that place of privilege, they haven't seen it. They didn't even know what's happening. You know what I mean? To even like let it sink in to know that, oh, there's something really wrong going on. And so now they're I, awake. Shelly, what do you think? I, well, I think there's, when so the, here it goes back to my experience. I remember really clearly being a person who got raised to think that racism was wrong, but it wasn't until kind of this sort of situation where I had to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually part of this. Like there's something I need to fix. There's something I need to do. This is bigger than just wanting people to be treated well. And psychologically, it was like the rug being ripped out from under me to take it seriously. And I would say that right now we are in a time period where so many people have advanced in this conversation that the distance between being unconscious to this to becoming able to have a decent conversation on this is like is like a huge gulf for white people because not only are we needing to realize that there's deep systemic racism in like all sorts of different ways and be able to talk about that. But we have to understand that this also comes with our normal attitudes and behaviors and the, the things that we say that are end up being microaggressions without our intent. And being asked to immediately get good at all of that is really what's called for. And the distance from intention to actually doing the work is actually kind of a gulf. And so as a white person starts to get a sense of, wow, this is huge, this is really big, and then there's a little bit of a freak out that goes on. And so like, where am I able to have this conversation where I'm not gonna do more damage? And that's where I think that issue of the shame and the guilt thing comes in. It's been really important. And it took me a long time to realize there's a huge difference between feeling like, oh, wow, like, am I complicit in this? I don't want to be complicit in this. What do I do about that? That's different than I'm supposed to feel bad about myself as a white person. That's a shame place. And that shame thing doesn't actually spur good motivated movement forward. It actually just becomes like a downward spiral for us. And so I appreciate what Ansley's saying. So a lot of organizations like Aware LA and, you know, is trying to have a landing place so that white people who are starting to wake up can go talk to other white people to be like, it's not about trying to make something palatable. It's trying to say, this is 
gross what we have to look at. And we need to also recognize that this isn't about us. This isn't about us as like personally being responsible for all things, but we have to take it personally in the sense of being responsible, responsible for playing a part in doing something to fix the situation. And the guilt part is almost inescapable when we take it seriously, because we have been a part of on the daily basis, receiving privileges and stuff like that, that can be some of the motivator to do things differently. That's a little bit different than like a shame based kind of like you're a bad person. Approach, I fully agree which with is you. And shame doesn't, there. I mean, in, in any capacity, it doesn't help anyone feel comfortable with trying to learn and grow. So fully get yeah. that piece. I think where I was coming from was not really on a shame level at all. Just the simple reaction to what you were sharing as the initial, what do I do with this? How do I do it? And how that can sometimes feel like a burden to people of color who are partnering with friends, family and colleagues, et cetera, as they are starting to get into that landscape. Yeah. Which is why it's super important for that, for there to be enough, I think, white people to do that labor. I mean, I know that for us to all be human with each other, you know, there are people who are willing to be engaged in these conversations with their partners and their friends. And Lisa, like you reaching out to Ansley and being interested in still staying in that conversation is awesome. And right now we're in a position where it's like, you know, there are enough people who have done enough work for white people to be able to do that learning without depending on their Black friends to do that educating for them. Did you say they are or are not enough people? I think there are. Okay, I just didn't hear you. (laughs) So full disclosure, (laughs) Ansley and I had a few months over the summer where we were not speaking, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it got to a point for me for the first time where I was just like, I can't do this. And that's Mm -hmm. an unusual place for me, but there was just so much going on emotionally where I couldn't, I could not even articulate to her. And again, Ansley has always been very open-minded and, and wanting and, and willing to have, and there's nothing I can't say to her. Like, we're, we're good friends. I can, say, I can speak my mind to her 100% and not worry. And I still emotionally could not do it with her. So Ansley, how, mm-hmm. from your perspective, did that break in that friendship that land? Go? Like, what was your perspective? <laughs> how did it break? You mean, like, how did we get out of that, you mean? How did or it feel to be how? in that or not in it, as the case is? <laughs> How did it land um, for you, like from your perspective? Well, I mean, it was it wasn't easy. Um, I, I I mean, I I don't mind you know dialogue that gets messy. I I, I don't mind that. Um, I think, uh, but I do think that that white people do um, desire a sense of calm when it comes to communication, and you know, this is something I'm still wrestling with, and. Um, how to effectively communicate when things get heated. Um, and, and Colette, I hear you. The Black community has every right to feel rage and anger. I, I get that. I mean, it's exhausting. I mean, this has been generations. And, um, and your experience is real and painful. Um, I, I, I guess I just think we aren't always going to agree on sometimes the very specific, some specific things. Um, and that's okay. Um, and, but how that plays out in conversation is tricky. Um, and I think Very. Yeah. our, you know, Lisa and I's conversation was, anyways, I mean, without getting into so many <laughs> you deals, it was something, there, fine. you know, well, it was a very specific, t- you know, it really boiled down to a very specific thing, which was zero tolerance. And, and it, 
and we just have different opinions about that. And but what I will say, you know, after she challenged me on that and and it got heated. Um, and I will say I have since I, I spent a lot of time after our conversation looking into zero tolerance further, talking to educators, talking, you know, uh, both black and white, public and private. And um, I still hold my opinion, um, but I feel better about it. Like I. I I haven't changed my opinion about it, but um, I feel more confident. And I mean, I did study it in graduate school somewhat. I mean, I studied restorative justice. So do you know um, what is so interesting that I, I am just now starting to understand where our conversation went left, right? Because you re- responded to that piece of everything that happened. And it was a very different conversation on my end. And 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 I, th- and I think it proves the point like we could I, and I was not able to again, like I was in a place where I could not articulate it. Um, but for me, a, a good a good chunk of it felt like um, you weren't particularly decentering yourself from the conversation. Sure. Um, and in that respect, it was very black and white. And I didn't have the, the energy to go back and forth with you on it. But um, and, and we will. And we've, of course, since, you know, we're back talking and everything. Right. But. You know, we really wanted to make sure we, you know, don't hold anything back, especially around this, because I think it is pretty common. I want to highlight something again that Ainsley said that I think is really important and gets back to what Shelley and I were going back and forth with on the shame piece. And that's the ability to not personalize these conversations. And I think that's the main lesson that if we can learn as human beings and as human beings that are navigating these spaces of diversity, equity and inclusion in the learning, that 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 carries us through not needing to shame, blame other, all of that good stuff, because we can just understand that it's not about us as the person while having these conversations. So what do you guys think are the, the barriers to getting more white allies uh, to take up the mantle to really dig deep and do do some of this work, Shelley? Do you have any thoughts about that? Is it is I mean, it I guess is I... it fear of the amount of work? Is it fear of unveiling like just so much nastiness that you don't even want to plow through? <laughs> fear of making mistakes. I mean, it's yeah. a part. I guess that's a part of it. I feel like it almost hits what what, what Colette was just saying. There's there's something I remember viscerally around. I mean, there's this image that came up when I was just starting to get it, when I was just starting to understand, oh, that's what systemic racism looks like. Oh, okay, that's, and I was being asked to see my, like, my very values in the world, the ways that I was taught to just see, this is just how the world works. And I had all of these understandings of why the world was operating the way it was. And so when I was being taught that like every single bit of it was somehow infused with racism, it was hard to actually hold it together. Like there would be times I'd be in a conversation with somebody and doing the rounds, like going back and forth and back and forth. And I would start to get it or I'd read a certain book or I'd watch a film and I would start to get it. Go, Oh yeah, that's, that's that thing. That's where racism is. Okay. Now I understand it. And then I would start to feel like, okay, I'm a little bit more confident about this. And then I would have like, whatever, two days later, I'd be in different conversations with other people who were just offering the same old narrative that was much more individual centered. It was much more personal responsibility oriented. It was just some kind of argument against, and it would just, my whole understanding would fall apart. And it, it just took me a long time for the insights that were new to actually fill up my 
my brain enough to decenter <laughs> all of the narratives I had been fed all of my entire life. And so when I think somebody's just waking up to this, it's it can feel really overwhelming and it can feel wrong. Yeah. I mean, let me just say it, it can feel not correct. And so you know that the thing you saw on the video is wrong. That part feels wrong. That is clearly wrong. The, you know, ex, you know, George Floyd should not have died. That should not have happened. But to take that experience of watching that video and turn it into a deep understanding about how the entire criminal justice system is problematically racist and how it's infused in every nook and cranny of it, it took me years to understand all of those pieces. And so I just think there's the, there's just this big distance. Um, so you ask the question, what makes it hard? What makes it hard is the barrage of messaging that white people get that the world is as it should be. And if people just took responsibility for their lives, it would all be fine. Mm -hmm. It's that assimilationist idea of, well, you know, we as Europeans, quote unquote, assimilated into this particular culture. So why can't everybody? It, it, it's it's a whole other thing to try to process through why that isn't a viable option for people who don't look white. So you're saying your journey has been years and will continue. What do you advise, and Ainsley jump in too, what do you advise as first step for people who desire to get in there and do the work? Well, thankfully, I don't think it needs to be so long. Um, it was a really long time for me. I don't think the resources were as plentiful as they are now. Um, first thing that comes from my experience is to get uncomfortable. Allow yourself to be in conversations, um, whether it's watching, listening, attending, where you're not the majority, and listen to opinions that seem absolutely radically contrary to what you think is true about the world. And then listen harder. And then as you keep having internal arguments about that, listen harder and keep digging in until you find where does the truth lie in that? Even if there's some part of you that still is maintaining some aspect of your own truth, every, I mean, that, was, that still is happening for me. I still do that. That's an ongoing practice. Ainsley? I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say this just because Shelly's on the call, but honestly, her talk at Webster University, I, I think that is just such a good place to start. I mean, it. Um, I found it just so encouraging. Is this um, online? And, it is. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. We'll make sure to put that in the, the yeah, notes. It, it is great. I mean, I, I, I mean, there's so much information out there and, you know, I would just say, just start for anybody. I mean, like, just don't worry if it's like the right book or the, you know, it'll lead to the, uh, another one or another book. And I mean, there's just, but her, her talk, I just felt really, it was really helpful. And like, I don't know. I, I just, I would start there. I'm curious to know, Shelly, because you have been doing this for a while. You got it all figured out? I, it, <laughs> like, are you, I, I, because I, I think people would assume like you're comfortable in in multiple circles. You, you understand things in a better way. What keeps you up at night and where are you now in terms of like your own, your own learning? Ooh, that's a good question. What keeps you Ooh. up at night? <laughs> that is a bad question for today. <laughs> Uh, yeah. You know, the fragility of the democracy that has not served other people well, but for white people are starting to recognize the precipice that we're on to at least keep the institutions intact that could maybe at least allow us to keep pressing for justice. OK, so let's put that to the side. <laughs> um, but 
Because <laughs> uh, let me be clear, I've been studying um, the rise of the far right and white supremacists for the last two years. Um, and so that that's the journey I'm on recently. But I think really, really what you're asking for is the answer is no, I'm not I'm not all done. This thing is about layers. This thing is about being an onion and consistently peeling back a layer and then finding more and then peeling back a layer. And the thing is, that's good work. And if you can join a community and be part of people who are doing that toward a liberatory goal that is multiracial and vibrant, then that's that's where the good stuff in life is found, where the joy can be found. Anti-racism doesn't have to be just this awful, horrible thing eventually. At first, it's hard, but joining the community of people who are working to make this country better, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, specifically, no, I'm not done. I'm not done because there continue to be calls for um, justice in ways that I continue to, you know, maybe not understand as well. And so what's been most important for me has been like this idea of there being a racial justice freeway, this idea that there's lots of lanes and we in LA know there's a lots of different <laughs> lanes you can be on. And so just to give me a second here, I'll map it out. Like, you know, we got, we got our high occupancy vehicle lane. We got our carpool lane. So organizers, organizers are in that, in that lane. They are moving quick, hopefully faster than everybody else, because they're all together in that same vehicle. We got some radical folks some radical activists in fast lanes, right? But then there's a lot of different lanes we can be in all the way to a slow lane. And for me, I value every single lane. And so where I am currently positioned, and this gets to the question you asked, I move in a lot of the different lanes, but a lot of times I think I'm personally situated sometimes in a middle lane where I don't always feel as comfortable with what the radicals are having to say, but I listen enough to understand that there's something really important about the message they're delivering. And what I don't want to be is that classic liberal white person who starts arguing back against Black activists saying, you're not doing it right. Like, that's not something I'm going to do. But how I can be valuable is to listen deeply, listen in, trying to understand so I can help transfer that message to, to other white people in my vicinity who are not even trying to hear that message, right? So for me, I'm not done because I am still on a regular basis trying to figure out, like, how do I show up the best I can at my workplace when the conversation is getting a bit more intense than is comfortable for me? Um, how do I show up to be um, in allyship with people who are asking things that feel like a stretch? That's still true. It's always going to be true. And that's okay. That's the part I'm done with. I'm done fighting against that. Yeah. Ansley, what lane are you in? <laughs> um, I mean, I just got on one ramp, I think. I mean, um, but but I will say, Shelly, I'm really I really appreciate Shelly because I really feel like she's like the driver at driver's ed or whatever, you know, the, the driving school trying to teach you. <laughs> yeah, the driving school. Shelly's the driving school. And you know what? I mean, and, and that's a sacrifice to, you know, somewhat because she could be doing so many other things, but she's waiting for these, you know, slow drivers to get on the <laughs> highway, you know, and she's encouraging them to get on the driveway. And it's, and it's amazing. And I guess that's, um, what would you say, Ansley, how do we help more? How do we help get more drivers? Um, uh, how do we keep our foot on the gas? I don't know. So that, 
that's a really good question. And it, for me, it comes back to, I have told you this numerous times. I feel like the communication is what I'm really struggling with. Like I, I see the communication breaking down, like um, bridging because, you know, the black community has every right to be angry. And then but the white community is, you know, doesn't want to, you know, feels like it's getting yelled at constantly. And, and, and I, I feel like, you know, I, I understand both sides and I feel like we need to, um, I don't know, somehow bridge it. Um, and I, I, do just uh, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not, um, call out the generalizations here too, though, that, that like the black community in general is not all angry and the white community oh, yeah, in general, absolutely. and that there are those of us out there yeah, that absolutely. are trying to have these conversations and, at, you know, at the risk of beating an analogy to death, as you were saying, you are entering the highway. My one piece of advice for those that are entering the highway is please eliminate immediately. Yeah, but from your conversations with people in this realm, because yeah. that then sends certain people like myself right. to the angry realm. <laughs> And the conversation right. takes on I, a whole road different rage. lens. So that's like what you were saying, Shelly, that ability to right. listen yeah. and take it in and listen deeper. Yeah. Um, not to say that you we shouldn't share perspectives and, and be able to discuss those, but the trigger words, yeah, but, yeah. are big. Yeah. I, I, th- it, I think that's also, that pre- prevents white people. I mean, I think people are, ter- I think white people are terrified of making those mistakes and saying the wrong thing. Yeah. And then they, and then they don't even engage in all and they, at all. And they retreat back to their, you know, community where they don't have to focus on it because that's the luxury of, you know, of their position. But ideally, and they don't, you know, black people don't have that. Ideally though, that community comes together and they start focusing on it together to Shelly's point, like having that safe space. Yeah, absolutely. White people who also are wanting to do the work, I think it's crucial. And and they can mess up. Well, if it's okay, I mean, I I think I think it's multi-pronged. So on, on one hand, I think for for any white person listening who's like, I actually care deeply, and I really don't know what to do because of the pandemic. AwareLA is online. Go to awarela.org and sign up for a Saturday or a Sunday blog. Join the conversation and pose questions and learn and listen to other white people's journey stories. Ask them how they got involved. Learn a little bit through that. Ask them for what resources have gotten them a few steps ahead. We all need to help each other get that step ahead. That's one part of it. And then in our multiracial lives and our lived experience, right? It's about taking the messages we're receiving seriously about not, quote unquote, expecting to be taught by, you know, people in our lives. That said, to to keep treating each other like full human beings. And here's the thing that that I think might be useful. And I know this is a mistake because I've made the mistake. And I know lots of people who have made the mistake. If we go up to somebody and just start posing questions and, hey, I'm, you know, tell me about this or tell me about this. I want to hear your perspective. It's like, oh, my God, do I want to have this race conversation right now? Like, no, leave me alone. But there's a way to ask that question as a well-meaning, vulnerable, humble white person that says, I'm on a journey. I'm trying to figure this out. And I'm interested in having these conversations. If you're interested in talking with me, I would love it. I would really appreciate it. And then you leave it there. And if you've got a Black or Indigenous, a person of color in your life who's willing to pick up that conversation because they love and care about you, 
awesome. Have that conversation. And then when you piss them off, understand that if they're staying in that conversation with you, it's because they love you. (laughs) They love you. And that's why they're engaged in the conversation with you because people are not going to invest in that fight unless they're investing in you. And that's a huge white culture problematic that the white, that most white folks have is we are afraid of conflict. So having a, like a difficult dialogue, a challenging one to us feels like the relationship's going to go away. Mm-hmm. That's a generalization, but it's also a tendency, a, a very serious tendency. So if we as white people can flip that up and not feel like getting into a deep, deep, difficult conversation means the relationship's ending, but it's actually a deepening and an investment that can help us be less defensive, mm-hmm. let us stay in it a little bit more. But again, if we've made the invitation and it's been accepted, not as an expectation, but as an invitation. Well, and I think it also highlights that, you know, you don't know what someone's dealing with, right? So you wanting to get X, Y, and Z answered might just be on the heels of them just having an experience where they felt erased <laughs> and you might catch the wrath from that. <laughs> and I also feel the need to acknowledge that you just dropped the mic about 10 to 15 times yeah. in that one <laughs> statement that you yes. made. So thank you. Very insightful. Yes. And she's also being very modest because what you tell us, tell us about witnessing whiteness, Shelley. Please. I'd rather hear Ainsley talk about it. <laughs> no, witnessing whiteness is oh, a book great. that I wrote, I mean, I... but Ainsley's reading it. So. It's a well, book you I, wrote. For the, like the, for, yeah, she, she wrote a book and it's, I'm, I'm actually, I read it twice. Um, and, and I highly recommend doing that because you, you really pick up so much more on the second round. Um, and, you know, it, I think what I love about it is it's, I, I don't know, encouraging, I don't know the right word, but I mean, it's, it's encouraging people to get on the highway. Um, and um, just like I said, RBG, like the best thing about her, she, she encouraged people to get involved and it made you want to do it. And Shelly's really good at doing that, like in, inspiring people to want and get to get involved. Because I wrote it for my dad. I mean, I wrote it for the human race, <laughs> but um, but I wrote it because my journey to feeling like an okay person in the world who was dedicated to anti-racism no matter what, even if there was somebody telling me I was doing it wrong or that I shouldn't be doing it, and you know that I needed to have enough deep roots to know that no matter who I was talking to, that I was going to stay in the fight for this. Um, yeah, I, I wanted more people to get farther ahead faster than I did, but I also wanted to repair my relationship with my family with whom I felt very disconnected because for white people who start having this conversation when everybody around them doesn't understand it, that actually can be kind of alienating. Um, and again, at the time there wasn't a community around me to, to, to dive into, um, of white people who got it. So I wrote it with my dad in mind, like, what would he say if I said this? And, 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 and then what would I need to say if, if I said this to get him on board? Um, because I love my dad and I want him to understand and I want him to be part of this and I didn't want to shame him. And, and I think that's what comes through of the encouragement, because as a white person talking to other white people, um, it's not just about information. It's about understanding the the nuances of where our psyche goes because of our conditioned training. That isn't what we chose. We didn't select to become conditioned in a way that is quote unquote, the everyday racist, the unconscious racist. So getting out of it, it it takes work, but we have to love each other into this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really good perspective to remind people about that. It's not 
like a choice on behalf of white people to end up in that power of, right. excuse me, position of power and benefit from the system. Yep. From day one. Mm-hmm. No one's fault. Just how our society works. Born into it. I mean, there are points along the way where I made choices not to pay close enough attention. And there's all sorts of things that I can now go back and, and see along the way. Oh, here was this opportunity to learn more. Or here was this opportunity to understand more. And, you know, I've had to wrestle with my own guilt moments around where I where I messed up. You know, that's true. Um, and the, the fact that my society around me didn't give me the tools for that was not my fault. Right. I think a lot of people that have, are waking up are really surprised to wake up to that, right? Everything you've trusted around you was not quite what it seemed. Well, ladies, this has been so lovely and fascinating. I know, right? Um, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your experiences, chatting us up. Remember to tune in every Thursday for the Erased Podcast, Erased with a C, erasedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. But please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. And keep sending your thoughts and suggestions for episodes because that's exactly where today's episode came from. <laughs>